Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are so thrilled to have our guests today. We've been wanting to talk about UDL or Universal Design for Learning and what it looks like in high-quality instructional materials for quite some time. I feel like I say that every time, Melissa. I'm like, we've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. But it's true. You're not lying. <laughs> no, we have a lot of things we want to talk about. So. Yeah. And this one, I, I, we just had another guest come on about talking about equity. And I think this is similar in a way. Like, talked they talked about equity often, like, gets you know, thrown in at the end, sprinkled on top, and people don't really know what it is. And I think UDLs get some of those same things too, right? Like, oh, don't forget about UDL when really like it should be part of everything you're doing. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest today too about how do you, how does that work and how does it work in high quality instructional materials? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I feel like sometimes it's um, one of those things where you think you know what it is, but then I hope that after talking with our guests today, we all have a deeper understanding of what it is and then also what it looks like because it can be hard to find in high quality materials because I I don't know, I feel like the whole lesson plan is UDL. (laughs) Right, I was going to say, it's actually probably better if you can't find it. (laughs) So we are going to talk to our guests today. We have two wonderful, wonderful gals from Great Mind. We have Miss Vivian Norris and Miss Sue Sabella. So Sue, why don't you uh, start by sharing a little bit about yourself and welcome to the podcast, ladies. Welcome. Uh, Well, welcome, Lori and Melissa, too. Thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to be here today. Um, And before I came to Great Minds, I used to be a clinical coordinator of an elementary ed program. And my lab school was in a very unique position where they were piloting wit and wisdom, but also working with CAST and trying to bring UDL to their district. So I had the opportunity to kind of observe this smash of two incredible approaches to support all of their learners Mm -hmm. as readers, writers, speakers, and listeners. So it's so exciting to be with you here today. I'm currently working as an instinct teacher at Great Minds, finishing up that project. And then I'm also excited to become a curriculum writer. So it's great to be with you today. Thank you. I feel like I learned so much about everybody, even if I already know them on the podcast. (laughs) I didn't know you did that. So that's exciting. Um, Kim, would you mind sharing what CAST is just for our listeners who don't know, Sue? Sure. CAST is an organization in Massachusetts, and they develop the UDL guidelines, and they support districts throughout the country with UDL, bringing it to their district, and then also supporting them with scaffolds for students through materials that they offer for free on on their website. So I'm a huge fan of the folks at CAST. Thank you. All right, Vivian, welcome. It's your turn. Share a little bit about yourself so our listeners can get to know you. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having us. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So I actually started my career on Wall Street and I I was there for several years and I just volunteered in a lot of- Did you know that, Lori? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't know any of this. this. (laughs) Um, And it was actually because I volunteered so much in different education-based nonprofits that I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And it made perfect sense for me because I've always loved school Mm -hmm. and learning. So um, I just wondered why I didn't discover it earlier. But I (laughs) did a program through KIPP DC for through their capital teaching residency program. So I basically, um, it was a gradual release with a teacher. So I was able to learn how to be a teacher with, um, a mentor. And, uh, that was a great experience. And I, and I stayed at that school for four additional years and that's when we adopted wit and wisdom. So, uh, we were, um, on the earlier side of adopting it where everything still said draft on it. And, (laughs) um, so that was a really exciting experience to, work with the new curriculum that was high quality, but also I was a new teacher. So I got to, um, it was a steep learning curve, but in the end, um, I've been a huge champion for wit and wisdom. Um, and then while I was teaching there, I did a master's program at GW that focused on culturally and linguistically diverse learners. So that 
I think doing that simultaneously while teaching was really where UDL was a part of my practice from the very beginning of teaching, as opposed to something I had to learn later on. So in that way, I'm very lucky that um, I don't know much else, um, <laughs> but that helped me when I was an instructional coach afterwards at a school where I had to teach others what UDL was. So I had the experience of knowing it um, and t- doing it from the beginning, but then also teaching others who are a little more reticent to change and more veteran in their ways and teaching them um, what UDL is and how to have more inclusive classrooms. So I've been uh, obsessed with <laughs> wisdom for forever. Um, so I was so excited to join the Great Minds team. And I've been working with Sue since August. And uh, I love working with her. And also we've been um, talking about UDL since then. And we are continuing our work together after the InSync project as curriculum writers. So I am very excited to do that with Sue some more. Well, I want to I throw out there. I, I mean, I know we're going to talk about what UDL looks like in high quality instructional materials, but... Um, for those listening, because I feel like it could be like, okay, last week, Melissa and I did a podcast on equity. And before that, we talked about, um, I don't know, what's another buzzword? Somebody throw out another buzzword. I don't know that we've done any other buzzword podcasts lately. I know, but, but we've, we've said buzzwords. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, do, I just, I want to name that like, w- this is something that is just like equity, just like we're saying equity is embedded within high quality materials. So just to like frame that for folks from the get-go, we're not saying like, like, because I do feel like in the past when I was a teacher, it was like, here's your curriculum. And don't forget, yeah, don't forget to add UDL. (laughs) So I I, like, I just wanted to say that because it feels like, you know, it felt like when I was a teacher, I had to quote, like add UDL or do all these other things that were buzzwords. So I want to hear what what it, you know, Sue, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that because when I did work in the lab schools with our pre-service teachers, I, because the veteran staff there was piloting Wit and Wisdom and trying to wrap their heads around UDL, they had asked me to kind of take a deep look at the curriculum and say, how can we add UDL to this? <laughs> Well, when I actually did take a deep dive into the curriculum, I then uh, co-taught lessons with my pre-service teachers and actually brought back student work to the university classroom to analyze it. And I said, there is no, they're not adding anything to this curriculum. This curriculum was designed with UDL in mind let me just show you how they did that and where it is in the curriculum. So you could tell that it was framed with the guidelines and the principles of UDL. It's just, unless you really took that deep dive, it was so well done that it truly was invisible. The curriculum was extremely supportive of all learners but unless you really looked for it, you couldn't see where it was. So it was extremely well designed. So it was a pleasure to go back and then share that with the veteran teachers. It's like you're not adding something on. It's already there. That's really helpful, Sue. Yeah. And I think the best way to um, start to understand UDL and, and how to look for it in high quality materials is to think about yourself as a learner. So before we start, I I think it'd be really helpful if Lori and Melissa and Sue try to think of a word and our listeners, you know, think about a word or a phrase that describes yourself as an adult learner, whether that's yourself in a meeting or uh, in like a staff meeting, or if it's yourself um, when you're, you know, reading articles or new texts, what, how would you describe yourself as an adult learner? What a great question, Vivian. Who wants to be brave and go first? <laughs> I just, I, I don't know my word, but let me just talk it out and you guys can help me. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, when you just said that in, in a meeting, and I actually realized it's even when I read or when I listen to a podcast or anything, I always have to be writing something, even if it's just doodling, literally, even if it's not related to it, I have to be like doing something with my hand. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but, but I mean, often it's taking notes, but it's, it's sometimes it is just like making sure I'm still moving while I, while I'm listening or reading. I don't know what that is. I think, I don't think there needs to be a word. (laughs) Okay. I think that's just uh, knowing that. What about you, Lori? 
Well, I can relate to that, Melissa, because I think I spent my entire middle and high school career doing that. <laughs> Just like doodling on the side of my notebook. Uh, my, no, my whole adult career too it has not stopped. Um, for, I think as an adult, I'm going to say like an active engager. Um, and I, I mean that in multiple ways. Like I, I need to be actively engaged in the convert, like for example, right now, I have to be in order to be able to be a, an active part of this conversation. I have to be taking notes. I'm going to ask lots of questions. Um, I'm probably going to process verbally and say, like, clarify some things. So maybe that's a mix of a, a couple different strategies, but um, definitely like verbal processing is really helpful for me. Like, I'm always clarifying in meetings or saying, you know, I just want to make sure I understand um, or asking follow-up questions. Um, and I've always been like a, a question asker or, and, and a, like a verbalizer. So I guess maybe I'm getting at it that way. <laughs> is that, is that suffice Vivian? I, I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> no, there's no wrong answer. I, I, you know, everyone's different, but what I'm, what I'm hearing is that as adults, we've learned multiple strategies to, um, learn. And we also know what works best. So you're all capable of taking notes and you're all capable of verbal processing, but like Melissa is gravitates the more of the note taking and Lori gravitates the more of that verbal processing. And that's just, um, inherently what helps you absorb the information better. So that's kind of what we're getting at is, or, or we're going to be talking about a lot is that learners are just different. And I think the easiest way to start this conversation is starting with yourself as an adult. And as you know, listeners probably reflect on their own educational career, you're going to think about yourself as a learner when you were younger too, and maybe how that's evolved and changed or what worked and what didn't. And most of the time we know what didn't work for you <laughs> as a kid and, yeah. and how that changes over time. Um, but, um, and so I just have to ask you too, how would you describe yourself as an adult learner? Oh, it's funny because um, I'm thinking I'm opposite of Lori, which is really interesting because I think about the two of us being in a classroom, that variability of learners. So I'm very much a visual learner and it's not, not only receiving information to be able to learn, but output as well, which I learned a great deal about myself as a learner as an in-sync teacher. And what I found is I was able to process the information more deeply because I was able to create visuals. So when I think about learners in the classroom, you know, when we're only asking them to respond one way, either verbally or in writing, mm -hmm. are we throwing up barriers? So I just think UDL is so interesting to think about as adults. That's a good point too. I, you know, if you think about us either in the classroom as classmates or, I mean, we are workmates and think about the value add that it brings to our team that I'm processing one way, you're processing another, and yet we're coming together to work together on a very big and, and very important project that's impacting lots of children across the nation. So, you know, think about if we didn't have those differences in learning styles and, and how we would, um, approach the project and do things differently. It makes it special, I think. Yeah. And I think making that very aware in the classroom that every single learner in that classroom is unique and every single learner is bringing their own strength. You know, when we talk about building a classroom community, I think that's a very positive way to do that. We all come with unique strengths and needs as well. That's a super good point, Sue. So I'm curious, um, how would you both share a basic UDL definition or like, hey, here are the basics on UDL. If, if you are a first-year teacher, you have no idea what when we're saying universal design for learning, or maybe you're a 30-year veteran teacher and you've heard this your whole career and you might have, you know, assumed your own de uh, definition of it. Can we redefine it for folks so that everybody's on the same page moving forward as a listener in this podcast. Sure. Um, is it okay if I start with a little bit of a history behind it? So then it's easy of to... Of course. Um, okay. So before we talk about universal design for learning, it's really helpful to actually understand architecture and universal design in general. So before the universal design movement, architects rarely address the mobility and communication needs of people with disabilities. And the 
the, the result were that a lot of buildings were inaccessible to many. So in the late 1960s, there, uh, Congress passed the Architectural Barriers Act, and that was the first federal law that addressed accessibility, and it made federal buildings and federal facilities accessible to people with disabilities. And that legislation led to extensive retrofitting of buildings with ramps, elevators, talking signs, and other access devices. But as I'm sure we've all seen in different places, retrofitting is expensive and often aesthetically disastrous and so ugly. <laughs> so it, it's just inadequate <laughs> from a practical standpoint. So um, Ron Mace from North Carolina State University or started this idea of universal design, which is the idea to create a physical structure that's designed from the beginning to a accommodate the widest range of users, including those with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And there are different, I think there are seven architectural principles um, for this universal design, but the idea is that you're increasing accessibility um, in a, of a physical space. And it's central to these principles is providing alternatives for users. So some examples are like ramps, but it's um, embedded into the stairs and you might see visuals of this if you google it but there's um like a ramp and the stairs so you can have a choice of which one you want to take or the fa a famous example is the louvre uh the museum in paris where there's an elevator in the center of a stairwell that's spiraling so then you can have a choice of which you want to take and if you've been to any of these places you've seen that you want to take the elevator sometimes and it, it, whether or not you have a physical disability, but it's, it's um, integral to the, the accessibility for everyone, but it's also a part of the architecture. So it's not so ugly <laughs> and it, it's designed together from the beginning. So the uh, Americans, uh, or so in, in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act expanded that mission and it took it beyond just physical spaces and to technology, transportation, and so much more. So, you know, like closed captioning in videos, or um, I think about like those OXO kitchen appliances, like <laughs> can openers and things like that. And they're really grippy and mm -hmm. they're actually designed for people with arthritis, but mm -hmm. I'm sure everybody has, uh, and you know, some of those items in their kitchen, but it's designed with somebody who needs, you know, higher accessibility um, in mind, but it's part of it as opposed to something you add on or retrofit later. So the idea is that when you think about that in architecture and then it's in, and then you think about a classroom, it's the idea that you can, universal design for learning is the idea that you can create learning environments that are flexible and accommodate all learners whether that's a physical space or academic or mental, and it's flexible and accommodating from the beginning. Mm. So that's what UDL is and Universal Design for Learning. And Sue kind of talked about this before, but the Center for Applied Special Technology, CAST, originated in 1984, and they originated to explore ways of new technologies to provide better educational experiences for students with disabilities. And they tested and refined their, their um, principles, priorities, and vision so that way they can come to this um, understanding of how to improve education using flexible methods and materials. And that's where you have like the UDL framework and the you know, like universal design for learning framework. I just have to say, those examples just made things so clear. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. I had in my head um, here in Baltimore, we have a lot of row homes and they're like often up really high, like a lot of stairs to get to the, the front door. And you often see these like really, really horribly ugly ramps <laughs> that are added when when it's needed, right? Someone, you know, gets in a wheelchair or whatever happens and it's and needed. And it's expensive. Like even if you I'm wanted sure. it to be more beautiful, <laughs> like it's expensive. So it's, it's hard. Yeah. So that was, that's what I pictured in my head was those like, oh yeah, like <laughs> it would have been much easier from the beginning if it was designed with something in mind. Um, so yeah, that's, that, those are just really great real life examples um, that really help, help me to understand what, what does that mean for what a classroom could look like? Yeah. I'm hoping that one of you might be able to give a little dip into the the three principles of UDL. I know uh, when I was a teacher, I remember hearing these all the time and I didn't exactly know 
<laughs> what they all meant, but I tried really hard to do them. So yeah. <laughs> um, I will admit, I will admit that. Um, and I feel so much better <laughs> using a high quality curriculum because I'm like, oh, now I don't have to write all of this in, which, you know, didn't make a lot of sense to do in the first place. So right. I'm hoping that you might share. Um, I'm just going to call them out really quickly. So it, uh, the three principles are engagement, representation, and action and expression. Yes. So, um, and when we think about ourselves as learners, like, I think one thing that helps me are analogies. So I, I like, uh, Melissa was just saying about knowing how it plays out in real life. I think, uh, you know, I can give a couple of examples of that too, to help those of you who remember better that way. But engagement is really the, why am I learning this? Um, and the idea that learners differ markedly in the ways in which they can be engaged or motivated to learn. Uh, I think every teacher can relate to this and understand that every child uh, connects or is engaged differently in the work. For sure. I mean, we just, we just showed that right in our. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, and it's, you know, like each principle, there's a lot more extensive points that you can target. So if you know you're strong in one area, you can kind of focus on another. Um, but that's generally what it is. It's the, why am I learning this? And the, so then representation is the what am I learning? Are students able to access the learning? And that's the idea that learners differ in the ways that they perceive and comprehend information that is presented to them. So one example that I really love is um, if you were to have people in your home, like you just moved to a new neighborhood and you are setting out food for them and you have all these you know, appetizers and great food and nobody's eating it. And you're like, well, it's accessible. There's a table there. There's nothing obstructing the table. You know, why aren't they eating it? But then you later find out that, you know, somebody's kosher, there's a different allergy needs in the, in the neighborhood. Somebody's lactose intolerant. And, and you realize that despite putting out the food, it's not accessible to the people who uh, you'd like to have it. So um, when we think about representation, it's, you know, not just making the information accessible for students, but teaching them also how to transform accessible information into usable knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, or the last principle is action and expression. So it's kind of two parts. The It's how, how will I share my learning with others? And the action is how do students navigate the learning environment? And expression is how students show what they know. And this bucket really kind of um, encompasses the idea that learners differ in the ways that they can navigate a learning environment and express what they know. Thank you for that. I feel like when, so I'm just going to say, like when I was a teacher, I think that that last one was really pushed heavily. Like, how can we, how can we have students show what they know? And then you're going to do a project-based approach or a choice-based approach. Like it was very, um, like, I remember a lot of focus on that particular one. So I'm not sure if that resonates with anybody listening. <laughs> I think um, what you're reminding me is that a lot of the time we think of UDL, or we think of these strategies as a big project. So if you're yes, like a culminating yes. project, um, how can we give students choices and options? But I think what's important too, that you'll see in high quality curriculum materials, but also in teaching just as a teacher in your everyday life, that it's not, it's also little strategies along the way. Um, and another analogy I really love is like, think about when you get into a car, you know, you adjust the mirror. If, you know, you're sharing a car with somebody who's taller or shorter than you, like you're adjusting the mirror, um, the side mirrors, the rear view mirror, and your seat a little bit, the steering wheel. And it's like these tiny little adjustments. And that's what teachers who are doing UDL really well are, are doing. They're making small tweaks that along the way, as opposed to like a big project at the end of a, a, a unit where it's like, let's get them all to, um, you know, make a video or, you know, write this script and make a comic book and all of these different options. Vivian, when you were going through those three, I was thinking, you know, oftentimes I think UDL gets put in a bucket with, um, you know, special education or, you know, ESOL and yes. English learners. And when you went through those three, and I'm assuming that you all agree with me on this, I, I was like, every learner could have a moment of whatever is being presented where they're like, 
for some reason, this isn't connecting, right? <laughs> this isn't connecting to me or I'm not able to do this no matter what, right? And, and I'm just wondering if you all would agree to that point or have thoughts about it. I definitely would love Sue to elaborate on this idea of learner variability, but I, I think you're, that's why we start off with thinking about yourselves as a learner mm-hmm. um, because it's not just limited to those with various needs. It's just the reality that we're all different. And also for teachers, it's impossible to individualize every aspect of your lesson for all, you know, 30 personalities that you have in a classroom. So it's kind of marrying those two ideas is that every learner is different, but also how do you teach them all in the same room at the same time? Yeah. And Learner variability, if I had a banner <laughs> on the wall, of <laughs> those would be the two words on my banner. Um, I've been an educator for 34 years, and I was so fortunate to start my career as the regular education side of an inclusion classroom for eight years. Mm-hmm. So I learned so much about special education, but my big walk away when I did start to hear about UDL is it's not a special education initiative. It really is about regular education, about education for all. And again, honoring everyone's choices and how they want to learn, how they can learn, and how they want to express their new learning, which is the action and expression. So um, when I think about wit and wisdom, um, I think back to when I first met it, when I was a clinical coordinator, and and I'm often asked, hey, why did you leave that super cushy job? (laughs) And and it was really, um, it was enjoyable with the pre-service teachers as well. But why did you go to Great Minds after having been a teacher for 34 years? And my reason is with wisdom. I've been searching for an ELA curriculum that met the needs for all learners for 34 years. <laughs> and after oh, and, and for me as well as a teacher, I would have killed to have had this curriculum at the beginning of my career. <laughs> um, because when I think about wit and wisdom in UDL, it's not only removing barriers for learners, but it's removing barriers for teachers. We, you, it's impossible to think about UDL in a district and spreading UDL throughout that district to support learners if teachers do not have common language, common approaches, common assessments, common instructional routines. UDL will fail. I saw it over and over and over again as a teacher, and that's when it did end up in that special ed bucket that Melissa talked about. But when you have a common approach with a high quality instructional material that is designed with UDL in mind, framed by the principles, now we're talking UDL success. So for me, it comes down to high quality instructional materials, professional development that teaches teachers how to use those instructional materials. And then also what Vivian and I are really trying to do is make those UDL principles and wit wisdom more visible to all the folks in your audience and beyond. Because we really see that as the step to success for all children if teachers are able to use these high quality instructional materials well. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I just think every time I talk to you, Sue, I learn something new. So <laughs> that learner variability piece is mm-hmm. when when we had our pre-call and you said that, I've been using it since. Like it's just been flowing. I just I love that phrase. I think it encompasses so much. And it made me think about a few different things that I, I want to just like very quickly share. And I'd love to hear you. Uh, you and Vivian, you know, kind of weigh in on before we talk about what this actually looks like, like, and you all give us some real concrete examples of what this looks like in high quality materials, specifically in wit and wisdom. Um, 
I was thinking like your learner variability could be influenced by like your learning preferences, but also your background knowledge. Is that all accurate? That's 100% accurate. Where, where, whenever I think about students coming to a new text, they're bringing so much background knowledge as well. And how are we tapping into that? And that's one thing that I love, 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 love about Wit and Wisdom is we're honoring what they are bringing by asking them initially to notice and to wonder. And again, we're tapping into their natural curiosity instead of clamping down on it and lecturing to them. Mm-hmm. So again, I the way the curriculum is structured and built is just very supportive of learners, especially with engagement. Because mm-hmm. we're saying right from the get-go, we honor what you're bringing to this piece and what you're thinking. Kids are powerful thinkers. And to be able to tap into that from the get-go is so important. And I, and I think also it's not, not thinking just about curriculum, but just also what teachers do naturally every day is you're not going to bring examples to a classroom about, you know, going to the beach in Hawaii if you live in Baltimore, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't know if everybody has been to Hawaii on an airplane, <sighs> been to right. a beach, like you're not going to bring these examples to the classroom unless um, they're relevant and authentic. And that's part of that engagement piece. So it's beautiful that a curriculum opens up with the opportunity for students to bring in their background and just recognize that all learners are different. But then also as teachers, you have control of being able to authentically bring opportunities um, for students to get engaged in your classroom, just aside from a curriculum and just what you're doing every day. I think too, like that's, they're such great points. And I'm thinking about how, you know, both adults and kids alike might show up differently on different days or I mean, different meetings, depending on like the different settings, the different people who were there, um, the, the different topic. te- texts, mm-hmm. topics, you know, I mean, I, I try, I'm trying to think about how this, how and why this could look differently and how that learner variability could shift. Like, that's what I think I've been thinking a lot since our, about, since our pre-call is what makes learner variability shift and those were some of the things that I came up with is like, you know, a child who um, maybe has family in Hawaii, but lives in uh, a landlocked state has this incredible background knowledge about um, beaches and islands and everything else. But then the other child sitting next to them has a completely different boatload of knowledge that when they come, you know, one child is going, it, it impacts their confidence. Like it impacts so much. Like, I feel like now we're talking about equity. We're talking about social emotional learning. We're talking about, um, just so much, so many things that are, are, are right in there with this idea of UDL as being like the forefront of those. And I think you have a great point about mentioning that like learner variability can shift constantly too, depending Mm -hmm. on the day or time of day. And, I think just not to overwhelm teachers, you have to step back and think like there are things in your control and there's things not in your control. (laughs) And and I felt like that was very hard as a teacher is to try and um, account for the things out of my control. But to just like narrow the scope a little bit is that, you know, you, if there's, if you're having a bad day as a teacher and you have such a great curriculum, like wit and wisdom, you can just rely on that to, to help, you know, reach all learners in that day. But then if you are able to do, you know, add a little bit of your own flair to it as a teacher, your own personality, there are other ways in which you can also reach learners because at the end of the day, you know, your students best. And I think that's also part of the, um, debate when people say, oh, I don't want a scripted curriculum because it's taking away from my teaching and Mm -hmm. and me. It's like, no, there's there's a lot of opportunities for you to access all the different people or all the different students in your classroom um, in addition to a high quality curriculum. Yeah. And if you think about that second bucket of representation, it really supports you as a teacher because as a teacher, you can you can't often anticipate what those barriers could be or what um, the different strengths and needs of, of your students are in that moment. 
but by having a variety of materials and a balance between audio and visual materials, you will be reaching your learners. And also thinking about what is the target for my lesson and to keep the rigor in that lesson, but to remove the barrier. By having a variety of materials that they can access, you're able to do that because children are making those choices about what they're accessing and how they're using those materials. That's a really great point. I'm thinking too, it does take that um, that teacher bias or preference out of it. Like, because I know what I would naturally do as a teacher might be different than what is in the curriculum and like because of my preferences right because of my learner variability and it's impacting my choices and then maybe students are always um not they're not maybe they're always listening to some audio stuff or like it it would be very much like swayed by my preferences and so this is this is really keeping that playing field equitable Is, is that accurate sue Totally. Like I'm even picturing if the if the goal for the lesson is comprehension, say it's comprehension um, of a speech for the child to be able to have the printed text in front of them. But if they're also aided by an audio version as well, the goal is comprehension. The goal in that lesson is not decoding or perhaps fluency, but it's comprehension that is removing the barrier to achieving the goal of comprehension by adding that audio feature, which is available if you're using a variety of high engaging texts. So again, I go back to what you said, Lori, by having that balance, you're supporting all learners because then they're able to tap into what they need. But to present materials in only one format you're throwing up this barrier without even realizing that you are. And I, what I love about Wit and Wisdom is they're taking that into consideration by curating engaging texts in a variety of formats right from the get-go. So that's why I'm a big fan as well. So Sue, I'm ready to start hearing about <laughs> examples from the curriculum. I I just had in my head, like, I don't know if any of you taught with like an old textbook at some point. And those textbooks for the teacher edition would have all the all the boxes that are like, here's UDL here, here's Oh my here. gosh, yes. <laughs> I forgot about those. Thanks, Melissa. <laughs> yeah. But but Wit and Wisdom doesn't have that. And I, I think it's a good thing. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. Um, but I think what you're saying, like it it's in there but we don't always necessarily, we don't have those big shout out boxes <laughs> to say that it's there. So I'm just wondering if you could like help the, our listeners to see like, where, where does it exist? Even if it's not called out in a box. <laughs> and I'll say quickly that those little boxes are ugly, just like retrofitting a building. Oh, I know. Yeah. And there's so many home. of them and yeah. there's like, <laughs> very distracting, very distracting. <laughs> Yeah, and when you look at wit and wisdom K through eight, the one thing that hops out at me that's not so invisible, but extremely supportive of all learners and all teachers is that wit and wisdom lessons use a consistent structure across modules and across grade levels. This structure includes a very clear introduction to new learning, clearly designated learning experiences that balance content and craft, frequent opportunities for formative assessment and reflection, and also a closure that provides summary of learning. And when I think about at the very beginning of the lesson, you see the essential question repeated every single time. Mm -hmm. That's not only for the learners, it's also for the teacher to to remember what is this open-ended question that as a learning community, we're working together to answer. And then when I think about UDL and the use of questioning that Wit and Wisdom has, Wit and Wisdom provides options for sustaining effort and persistence which helps with engagement with UDL, 
by displaying learning goals in multiple ways. So those uses of essential questions and focusing questions. That's so smart. I, you know, that did never jumped out at me previous to this, that that was really universal design for learning and the way that those goals are represented. So I learned something new today too. And I feel like I've been in the curriculum for a lot of years now, <laughs> probably not as long as Vivian, but yeah, that's that, you know, and I do, I, I love the thought that it's for the teacher as well as the student, because I, you know, I think sometimes we make the assumption that it's for the students, but it does help the teacher stay on track as well. It really does. It really does. And instead of asking teachers, go find your own materials, design a curriculum on your own. Yeah. Standards. You know, this is very supportive. We've removed the barrier for teachers by providing high quality instructional materials, which I think in the long run and is our goal, it supports learners mm-hmm. because their teacher can be 100% in the moment to respond to their questions and to push their thinking even further, which is what we want for children. But can I add to about what you're saying about the goal, um, like focusing on the goal, like I keep hearing Sue say that, and it's so important um, because literacy has so many components, right? Like, I mean, you guys know from your podcast, you just have so many different elements of literacy on there. There's, you know, speaking, listening, fluency, reading, writing, and then within reading and writing, there's so many pieces. So I feel like you know, as a teacher, you have to focus on like, what's the point of this lesson or what's the goal here? And, you know, how can I provide choice for students? And while there's a little bit of that that you can do yourself, it's so relieving as a teacher to know that the curriculum writers have thought of that. They've said like, let's think about what the goal is here actually. So then we can make sure that that's intact, but then the rest of it is, you know, has some choice or flexibility so that the teachers can implement how they see fit in their space. Uh, because there is just so much that you're trying to achieve. So interesting. That's, I think, when we first had our fidelity conversations, when we first had Witten Wisdom in Baltimore, that was that was the conversation. Like, what are the things that you can change, should change, and shouldn't change? And that that's really it. Like, what can you change to meet the needs of your students without changing the goal of the actual lesson? Yeah, and I as you get deeper into the curriculum and as you scale up the grades, another area... Um, that is extremely important to think about and to consider is vocabulary. You know, if we think about this as adults, vocabulary is the key to success in this world. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to understand what's being said, what's being read, and vocabulary can become a huge barrier to our learners So what I love about Wit and Wisdom is they go to great depths to clarify vocabulary, but not separate from the learning experience. It is embedded when that clarification occurs. And when they clarify vocabulary, they're doing that through very simple student-friendly definitions and also the use of common synonyms. So again, children are seeing the vocabulary words in the essential questions, in the focusing questions. They're hearing them again in the lessons. They're being supported through the use of friendly definitions. And then they're using that vocabulary in their writing that's connected to that reading. That's how students, all students, acquire and use vocabulary successfully. And again, it's almost hidden within those lessons, but extremely supportive of all learners. Yeah, you know, Sue, that makes me think about, and I just want to give an example for those listening who um, who may not have seen a wit and wisdom lesson and they're, they're just in their, you know, in pre-high quality materials phase or um, trying to figure out like what, what makes this different than what, we did before. Um, so I'll give an example and I'd love for you, you and Vivian to react to it. Um, previous to high quality materials, like for example, and I've done this as a teacher, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience when I, I remember doing this in fifth grade. Um, my aim would be to get to that writing that was connected to reading. My aim of the lesson would be there, but I would not like 
or get there effectively or efficiently because the vocabulary, although I would do it embedded from the text, the quote activities that I spent time on for vocabulary, like we would spend so much time doing um, a Freyer model or acting it out that it would literally take the whole lesson and then we wouldn't have time to read. Like it would just be way too much. I mean, in my opinion, way too much. Um, and then we would, it would th- kind of throw us off course in getting to the, the writing that's connected to the reading, which is the main goal. The main goal is not to stop and spend 40 minutes having kids do, a fr- do th- four different Freyer models to understand four vocabulary words or, you know, whatever it might be. So I, I hope that you, can you both react to that a little bit and, and just share like, is that, is that, is that thinking accurate? Um, I, I just would love to hear your thoughts. Well, I think that's where the Wit Wisdom Journal comes in very handy. Um, and when I think about the differences between how Melissa processes information and you as an adult learner, Lori, process information, when it comes to new vocabulary and you're reading and you're discussing, you could simply invite children What's going to help you remember this word? Could it be you're drawing a doodle in your journal? Could it be you need to write down that definition in your journal? Again, providing options. The journal remains consistent, whether it's a digital journal or a paper journal. That's staying consistent. But again, as a teacher within Wit and Wisdom, you can provide those options for what's best, what works for you. So you can remember what this word means as we continue to discuss and then move into writing. And this is a a little different, but related that uh, like in my classroom, I I taught second grade. We had to teach kids how to understand these choices and how to make that decision for themselves. So there is an element here of like, be gentle with yourself and it's going to take time, but part of the amazing thing that you can do for students is teaching them how to be a student, like how to be a learner and, and, you know, understand what works best for you. And there's a little bit of trial and error there, but one thing we did in our classroom was we started doing flexible workspaces. And if you've ever taught second grade, you know, <laughs> saying you're, you're allowed to lay on the floor and write is, you know, that if you don't teach them why or how that could be really disastrous. But <laughs> when we reached a point, you know, after several, several weeks of modeling and teaching, like, you know, behaviorally what to do, we had kids all over the classroom. I even had kids like under desks but they were writing and it worked and it, they, it, they it, love it under desks. I know. Oh my I gosh, they do. <laughs> like in cubbies. I'm like, no, no, that doesn't work. But you know, you had kids standing. I, I even had one student like because of handwriting issues, like we taped it to the wall mm-hmm. and he had to, you know, move around a lot as he was thinking of his ideas, but then he'd start writing with his paper on the wall. And, you know, I just, I, I think the important piece here is not just, you know, what options can you provide for students? Um, what's already in the curriculum that's there for a reason, so don't take it out. And then all, but teaching kids to understand, like we are all different and it's okay, just, but these are the pros and cons for yourself of why you might choose this or, or when, if you're laying on the floor, when you should probably not, if you know it's not working. <laughs> I feel like I've had to do that a whole lot with my third grader in this virtual learning space. Like, I will say it is really hard to, for me, and I've noticed for her, which I've had to point out, for her to read something and then comprehend it without being able to like annotate or take notes, like to go from the computer to a paper, it's, it's a skill that is not, has not been taught before. I, I, I'm anticipating because she struggled with it, but that we had to work on. So every time she's, she's at the computer learning, I'm like, grab a paper, grab your whiteboard, grab something so that you can, can process what it is that you're doing because you can't always do the work. Like you can't remember everything in your brain and on the computer screen. So like, I feel like this virtual learning space has really impacted um, oh, how we do this. <laughs> for teachers and students, like we've all learned like, okay, if you can't do it this way, like what are other ways um, that you have to make it work or why isn't it working for you? And like, what are you realizing about yourself or on the flip side for a lot of our students, like 
what, you know, um, what didn't work in the classroom. And now all of a sudden you're seeing them thrive Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're pointing that out for students. So they get that metacognitive processing of like what works for them. Yeah. And I think about that example, Lori, and what you are doing is you're supporting the learner in your home by providing options and technology is amazing in support of universal design for learning, but it should be a choice. I I strongly believe that we need to provide low tech options as well. If that helps learners process information, grow their knowledge and expand their learning. So again, at the beginning of at the beginning of the podcast, you guys mentioned the term buzzwords. Well, EdTech, huge buzzword, <laughs> huge buzzword. Where huge. were you then, Sue? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I knew this was <laughs> the 200 latest greatest apps. You know, it's it's such an overwhelming thought for teachers. Well, consider how overwhelming it is for learners as well. It's like, oh, I have a new program to learn today. Oh, here's another new app. And again, it's about what Vivian said, having an honest discussion with the learners in your environment. What works best for you? And if you want to try out some different things and then let me know, that's cool too. Like we need to let our learners have a voice in how they learn best. And that includes technology. Yeah, I was going to say some of my t- the teachers I work with have been doing, you know, the one minute fluency assessments um, and they've been trying to figure out how to do it virtually most of the year, which is a little harder. And they figured out some good things, but, uh, you know, they used Flipgrid to do some recording, which was kind of cool. And that's something that they might take with them when they go back in person. But they recently just went back in person and they said they're like, yeah, but for these five students, like it was just so much easier to just do it with them. <laughs> like it took five minutes to do all five students. We were done <laughs> and it was so much easier. <laughs> and again, that's a variability. In two years from yep. now, they may feel more comfortable using the tech. But again, asking them what works best for you. Yeah. Such good stuff. I, I love that idea, Sue, of keeping like all of the options in mind, especially those low-tech options, because I think sometimes with all of the fancy tools, were uh, what what was it in uh, in Twilight? You're like glimmered by it the, by them. <laughs> um, is that what it was? Was it? Am I right? Glimmer. Yeah. <laughs> and I think teachers feel like they have to use all those fancy tools too, right? Like there's like a little pressure to oh, there's this new fancy thing. <laughs> Someone did a PD about it, so now I have to use it. Right. Or like, oh, my teammate's using Padlet and this and that or Nearpod. And I have no idea what that is. And, but like writing on a post-it is actually just as effective as using, <laughs> I don't, one of them, Padlet, I think is the yeah. post-it one. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that's where, you know, I really try when, whenever we have the opportunity to meet with district leaders is I want them to know about UDL as well. And that it really is about providing options that enhance learning. Like whenever someone's going to use a new gadget or a new piece of software, the question that frames that decision should always be, how will this tool or this software enhance learning for my students? Because even something as simple as Google Docs, it can be used well, and we all know we can mm-hmm. use it very poorly as well, too. Google Doc was used so learners can collaborate. Whenever we're asking learners to fill out a Google Doc independently, right away, we're diminishing the power of that tool. Mm-hmm. So I always try to use that question and frame my decision making when it comes to tech use in the classroom. I'd never thought of that before. That's such a good point. (laughs) Now I feel like I want to invite everybody to edit all my Google Docs or collaborate with me because I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, that's a really good point though. And it it is very effective for that use. Um, Thinking about a meeting the other day I was in where we were all doing that. And then we took 10 minutes during the meeting to add to the Google document. That was something for us to react to or add to. And then we discussed it. And 
um, by I think having that processing time to then come back and talk about it, it was so much um, more effective than me sitting there reading that document that somebody already added their thoughts to. Cause I was again, actively engaged because we know I'm an active engager and that's <laughs> what I, you know, I needed to be able to type it or add a plus one or see what other people were thinking in order to engage with that content. Right. Right. And for your folks out there in the audience, the SAMR model, S-A-M-R model, you know, that goes along well with UDL as well. You always have to ask that question. Is what I'm doing enhancing learning or am I throwing up a barrier to learning? That's a really great question. And I think, are we ready for our advice? I was going to say, so. like, I always do. I always do that when someone gives a tiny piece of advice and then I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> we, we need to wrap up. So. <laughs> There's um, so much content though. This is, this is awesome. I think everybody's going to walk away feeling so much um, more clear about what UDL is and, and how it looks in high quality materials and just build their confidence in general in their knowledge base of UDL. So thank you both for, for this today. Yeah. And there's some, I mean, when Vivian said like, you know, if you're having a bad day and you just do the curriculum as it is, you are still doing some of, you know, some elements of UDL. And that, that would make me feel better as a teacher. That's like, I don't always necessarily have to do 25 things on top of what is already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, ladies. <laughs> so, you know, what's coming because I know you both listen. <laughs> so we'll just ask you um, to leave our uh, listeners today with a piece of advice. Um, I'm hoping it's about UDL, but honestly, it can be about anything. <laughs> um, well, I would say I kind of have three, but they're all related. But, you know, first, do your research for high quality curriculum that where it's embedded, UDL is embedded. Uh, and Sue kind of gave all those examples of how it's in the wit and wisdom curriculum. And as much as we're champions for that curriculum specifically, it's just, it's really important that it's part of the curriculum and not a box on the side that says, here's your UDL tip of this lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, do your research and make sure that you're acquiring high quality materials that have that there for, so you can reach all learners. Um, But then for teachers, I would say just like constantly ask yourself the question that Sue constantly said too is what's the goal of the lesson and what barriers are there? If the goal is for students to retell a story, it doesn't really matter how they do it. If that's the goal, give them those choices. Or when you think about the barrier, you know, a lot of times it's in hindsight, but if you have a student that constantly is so engaged in discussions, but they fall apart when they go to write, maybe you should give them another alternative to writing and see what they can produce because they're able to express their ideas differently. So like really asking yourself, what are the, what's the goal of the lesson and what are the barriers? Um, that's what I would say to teachers. And then for administrators and district level, um, I hear this constantly on the podcast. And I think Sue started off saying this as well. It's just Make sure everybody has a common understanding and shared language of what UDL is Mm -hmm. and understanding examples, whether it's studying the curriculum and looking at it together or um, videotaping a teacher and having everybody watch and observe and notice and wonder about it. But just that shared common understanding and, and knowledge is going to benefit everybody in the long run when talking about this and making it more seamless in your classroom. That's so helpful. And I I would love to reach out to district and also state level leaders when it comes to thinking about curriculum. Um, And I think about the money that is heading towards states to support learners, especially Mm -hmm. with, quote unquote, filling those gaps. So I'd really love to challenge them to consider UDL as they lead adult learners, educators, And when teachers do not have the access to carefully crafted high quality instructional materials and intentionally curated and engaging libraries of reading materials, we're creating barriers for educators to grow. Mm -hmm. So that's something to consider. And also with high quality instructional materials and a variety of PD approaches that meet the individual needs of adult learners, we're empowering educators. We're removing those barriers. 
So I encourage leaders all across the country to consider this when they're adopting curriculum. I'm so glad that you named that, Sue, because, I mean, especially the quote-unquote filling those gaps. I mean, my heart will will be broken for any district that is like, I'm purchasing this um, digital tool to, you know, like... I feel like in the sight of this like virtual space, we've lost, and Melissa and I talk about this all the time, like we've lost a little bit of the vision on what literacy instruction should be grounded in the science of reading. We've, we've taken, we've tried to be like, oh, but this is a, a great virtual tool, or this is a great virtual um, thing that students could use to quote, catch up or fill gaps. And mm-hmm. It drives me insane. I've, uh, we need to do like a whole nother podcast, Melissa, on. I'm putting a big star next to this in my All notes right. because we could talk for like another hour about this, but we won't. <laughs> we, we'll let Sue and Vivian continue on with their work day. <laughs> but yeah, no, Sue, I, I, that's really important that like top of mind, there is a lot of money and funding coming and like, l- please just leaders out there, use it wisely. And think yeah. of all learners. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you both so much. This was learned a lot from this podcast and it was great to meet you all since I didn't know you before, like Lori did. <laughs> Apparently I didn't even really know you. So <laughs> it was great to talk to you both. And as Sue said at the beginning, we loved getting the word out there about UDL to more and more people. So um it was great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. And I know Vivian is like Vivian, like um you listen to every podcast because you you shared pre-baby, you were listening to to the podcast and Vivian would send me messages like, I really loved this one. And now like post-baby, she, you're trying to um, to consume content in a way that's accessible and podcasts are it for you. So I feel like you're going to listen to your voice on this podcast and just be like so thrilled that you were, like it's going to be so funny. And oh, weird I feel like a celebrity. Yourself. I really yeah. do. <laughs> and everyone should be listening to the other episodes as well. Really insightful. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And thank you both for being here. We can't, we really can't thank you enough for giving us, uh, you know, an hour plus of your, your day today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you both. And thank you both for the work that you do. It's so powerful. We appreciate thank that you. too. All right. Have a wonderful day.